0: I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome a fellow registered dietitian, Dr. Dana Ellis Hunnis. She has worked as a clinical inpatient dietitian at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center since 2005. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. Dr. Hunnis completed her B.S. at Cornell University with a double major in nutrition and human biology, health, and society. She completed her R.D. training at Emory University Hospitals and Health System in Georgia, and she received both an MPH, Master's of Public Health, and Ph.D. from UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Her dissertation research focused on how climate change affects food security in Ethiopia. And we are going to be discussing her experiences, as well as her hot-off-the-press book, Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. It was just published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dana.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and I wonder if we could just start by my asking you how you found dietetics to be your career of choice.
1: Well, when I was an undergrad, I actually had to choose a major right off the bat, right before I even arrived. And I was really interested in human biology. I thought maybe I would go pre-med. However, I wasn't all that particularly interested in touching people or blood or things like that. So I took a bunch of courses and one of them happened to be a nutrition course. And I just fell in love with it. I thought it was fascinating how what we eat can make us feel better or potentially make us feel worse. And so I fell into it that way, just took all the nutrition courses that were available and ended up deciding, hey, you know, I can be a dietitian, get paid to do this. And so that's kind of what led me into dietetics. I was always into nutrition and healthy eating anyway. I grew up as a dancer, just very interested in health, and I just fell into it that way and then took the next step, which was a dietetic internship, and learned everything I needed to know in order to become a dietitian.
0: Your story is so similar to mine (laughs) in that I had to take a course in nutrition through the home economics department, Mm -hmm. and I was really interested in other areas, but Once I took that first nutrition course and I thought, oh my gosh, I can use food to heal Mm -hmm. or prevent disease, this was magical. And I thought, I want to do this for the rest of my life, and I've never regretted it. It's a wonderful field of study. And your professional path took a little bit of a different turn in that you studied internationally and you Mm -hmm. went and worked in Ethiopia. Tell me about that experience.
1: Yeah. So when I did my master's, you know, a lot of dietitians, they do a master's in nutrition, which is a lot of like what we learn in undergrad. I was more interested in kind of the well-being of the public at large. So that's what I did my master's in. And then I decided to do a PhD and I was very much interested in climate change and food security and what was happening. And it was still a pretty under-discussed topic at that time. It was very difficult to find a lot of people studying that even at UCLA of all places. And so actually my minor in my PhD, which was in urban planning, I had a wonderful professor named Eve Commons, and he has done a lot of work in Eastern Africa with Oxfam, the World Bank, World Vision, which is who I did my dissertation research with. And he was just really pivotal in getting me out there. So what I did was I went to Addis, which is the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, and I worked with World Vision. And what I did was I went out into the field and I interviewed people who had come from their rural villages into the city so that they could earn cash income. And the reason that they were doing this is because they couldn't grow enough crops on their field. Now, Ethiopia is one of those countries where over 80% of the people rely on rain to grow their food. They don't have the infrastructure that a lot of us have in the United States, the farmers here, with irrigation and all kinds of other inputs. So there, they don't even own their land. They rent it from the government, and then they have to pay taxes on it, even if they don't grow any food. And so these people are coming into the city because they need to earn some kind of cash, some kind of money to buy food if they can't grow enough, or School supplies, those were some of the major things that people were telling me. And of course, I had an interpreter because unfortunately, I don't speak Amharic. But just the people I met there along my way were just beautiful of heart, beautiful of mind. And even they seemed to understand the the notion that if you don't have enough rain, you can't grow enough food.
0: And so are there wells and has there been a movement to provide infrastructure to tap into underground aquifers and provide irrigation?
1: I mean, I think that's been an ongoing issue over there. However, at the moment, I mean, there's a terrible civil war. So I think a lot of these infrastructure issues have been put on the back burner. But in Eastern Africa, a lot of infrastructure and things like that actually tend to come from communities. And them raising capital to be able to buy these inputs, there's not necessarily a whole lot of governmental subsidies or payment for that kind of thing, is what I've learned from my research. Now, things may have changed in the last five to 10 years. However, at the time, that wasn't really something the government really paid a lot for.
0: Right. So how long were you there?
1: I was supposed to be there for a month. I was interviewing 60 individuals, and I actually, after about two weeks, got all the data that I needed. Everything was converging, so I stayed for two weeks, even though I I was supposed to stay for a month.
0: So you were there for a really relatively short time, and yet it sounds like that experience had a lasting impact.
1: Oh, it absolutely had a lasting impact. I, I mean, I still keep in touch with the man who interpreted for me. I still keep in touch with a young man who World Vision introduced me to. And so I try to keep some ears over there just to understand a little bit about what's going on. But it absolutely changed my perspective on a lot of things. There's just sometimes you have these life experiences, you can't quite explain it to people. But even if it is for a fairly short time, it can really change your outlook on life and and the way you do things.
0: Absolutely. And I'm curious, too, because many times when we are finished with our dietetic training, we tend, as dietitians, to get our first job in a hospital setting. And for me, my hospital experience was also life-changing. And I just wondered how your hospital experience affected the way you see the world today as well.
1: Well, I have been quite fortunate in that I work at a major medical center where we have some of the world's sickest patients. And I say that because we have people from all over the world fly here for transplants. Mm -hmm. I had a patient once who flew in from Dubai for a heart transplant and I've had patients from all over the world. So I think in that sense, I see a lot of diversity in the patients, a lot of diversity just even from patients who live in Los Angeles from all over. You know, you have some from downtown Los Angeles or East Los Angeles who maybe are not so health literate. And then you have some people from Santa Monica or Brentwood who are extremely wealthy and can afford the best care possible. So I think that experience has definitely opened my eyes to the idea that there's a lot of differences in people, but on the inside, we're all really the same. We all have the same organs and we all have the same basic needs in life, health, nutrition, mobility, things like that. And so definitely working in an academic medical center where research is really appreciated has given me, I think, a wealth of knowledge, but also just opportunities to explore and research things that I'm particularly interested in as well.
0: All right. So you are really focused on especially with your students the interrelationships between climate change, dietary patterns and food security, and I'm curious to know how you came to connect those dots.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a good question. So, I think really when it comes to food security and looking at Where and how do we grow our food around the world and how are we going to be able to grow enough food in a changing climate where drought is now becoming more prevalent in certain areas and then floods at the the very next week, removing all that soil that we desperately need to grow the food. I think just seeing all of this play out and reading all the literature on it from scientists who study this daily I think has really made those interconnections real. And then when you think about how food is also medicine and keeps us healthy, as you said earlier on, it's just making those connections, I think for me, was really a no brainer. It was sort of like, oh, a light turned on. It was, hey, the foods we eat not only affect us, but they also affect how the planet is going to sustain itself and also vice versa the health of the planet is going to affect the health of our foods and us as well.
0: It's such an interesting connection, and I think it's so important for us to be thinking, as you described, how it works both ways. I remember when I read some research, I believe it was done by a researcher in Nebraska, who had looked at the nutritional differences that climate is pushing us towards. So, for example, less protein, less of the micronutrients that might have been in food, say, 50, 100 years ago, because of the increased CO2 in the environment, that actually reduces the nutritional quality of the food that we eat.
1: Yeah, that actually doesn't surprise me. But also, I think about soil health. If you think about the fact that we are losing topsoil at these ridiculous rates, and we may not have topsoil in the next 50 to 60 years, which is importance for growing food, I think it really brings it home. You know, we just have to take better care of the planet in terms of what are we putting out into the environment, but also what are we keeping in the soils?
0: Right. Well, I want to jump to your book because It's a wonderful resource. The title, again, is Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. And it's a really different book because you see recipes and you think, oh, there must be some food recipes in here. Not at all. You've got really a recipe for actions that we can take to protect our health, our planet, and our food system. Tell me, what was that burning desire in you that led you to write this book?
1: I would say it's a a twofold issue. One was I had just given birth to my son and I had just finished my PhD. And so I had all of this information and I'm looking down at him and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like I just want this planet to stay healthy and safe for him. So really I would say my number one motivation was my son. And I think any parent or grandparent or Aunt or uncle could out there could feel the same way as we want this planet to sustain our children and our, you know, nieces and nephews. So that was number one. And I think number two, honestly, was after learning everything I had learned, I fell into this, you know, I hate to use the word, but at the same time, it's the truth depression. I was so depressed about everything I had learned. And the only way I knew how to cope with it was to write about it. And so by writing about it, I was able to get these emotions out on paper and think it through and say, hey, what have I learned that would counteract some of these things? What are things that individuals can do today, the moment we look at our plate, to really make a difference? And so I think I had a call to action, which is why I started writing, and it fell into a book, to be quite honest.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Dana Ellis-Hunnis. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She has worked as a clinical inpatient dietitian at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center since 2005. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. And she is the author of the book we are now discussing titled Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. So, Dana, I'm really glad you mentioned how you were feeling, and there is a lot of doom and gloom. I think people are exhausted from it. We have to be aware and have a collective sense of urgency, I think, but at the same time, action is the antidote to despair. And you give us lots of action steps that we can take. And I struggle between, yes, there is a role for the individual, and there's also a role for policy. And, of course, it's harder to work in policy arenas because it takes so long sometimes. Or you might take two steps forward, one step back. And that's just the nature of policy. So you empower the reader by giving us steps that we can do every day to make a difference. And I was thrilled to see a fellow dietitian care about some of the very issues that keep me up at night. For example, plastics. You have a good section here that helps consumers navigate the plastics that we encounter every day. And I love the way you describe, we want to reduce, reuse, and refuse the plastic. And then, of course, there's the whole myth of plastic recycling. So why don't you tell me how you became alarmed about the plastic use and why you decided to dedicate a chunk of the book to that subject?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll get to that in two seconds. I did want to address your question or comment about policy. I mean, I absolutely agree that Policy is a big picture ticket item, and that needs to happen as well. Unfortunately, what we saw at COP26 in Glasgow was a deferment or a kick the can down the road. So when policy and government leaders don't act, it's up to us, the individual, to do it, which is why I did write the book all about that. But as far as the plastic is concerned, you know, it's interesting. I would say I was just as guilty as the next person with my plastic use for the longest time. I was like, oh, it's a bottle. I can recycle it. But I watched a documentary about the plastic use that we all do and kind of where this plastic goes. And then I dived deeper into it, no pun intended, since a lot of it ends up in the ocean. But I think just reading and learning more about this and kind of how this plastic waste ends up in the ocean and and how the sea creatures in the ocean accidentally eat it and it harms them and and eventually it can harm us, I think it really just hit home that, yes, it requires industry and people in industry to curtail the use of plastic, but it also depends on us because as the buyer, we are saying it's okay. Plastic's okay. It's okay to have this much plastic in the environment and in our daily lives. So, I think there needs to be some sort of collaboration among individuals and industry in general.
0: Right. What I have found is sometimes it's hard to reject something on the shelf that you really want to purchase, but it's in plastic, and it boils down to what's more important here? Am I going to get this product and enjoy it? Or am I going to say, no, I really can't contribute to the rising use of plastic? I also like to contact manufacturers and say, I really want to purchase your product, but I just can't do it. Please put something in glass, something that truly is recyclable.
1: Right, absolutely. And in fact, that was one thing that we did change in our family is we did used to buy shampoos and conditioners in plastic bottles, but now we buy bars that come in little paper containers and those we can recycle. And then we also... We went to a CSA, so instead of getting lettuce in the big plastic clamshells, now we get the lettuce from a local farm and we process it ourselves. And there is something, I mean, I'll be honest, it's almost impossible in this day and age to be 100% plastic-free unless you are just beyond diligent about it, but every effort possible, in my opinion, makes a difference.
0: Absolutely. And that's what I love about your book, too, is you well for one thing, you've got questions and action steps for people. But you also say, you know, you don't have to do everything all at once, that any change you make is a change for the better. And so you remove that guilt factor, I think, that tends to creep into any of these discussions. It's like, okay, let me help see what I'm doing, and then help me move towards better behavior for the planet and us.
1: Right. Yeah. Self-efficacy is a huge motivating factor for people. When people get this sense of, hey, I can do that and then try something else and see, hey, I can be successful at this too. I do think that that really helps people kind of get on the, I don't know if the bandwagon is the right term, but it just helps motivate people to try something new and try something different and add on, build on to what they're already doing. So I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of The idea of, look, you don't need to be perfect, but definitely do something and do what you can do today and see that you can be successful at it. And I think some of this comes from the fact that I have psychologists in my family. My great uncle was a a very famous psychologist and my mother is a psychologist. And so I do think if I hadn't been a dietitian, I might have been a psychologist. And as you know, when you're a dietitian, sometimes you are a psychologist, too, when it comes to food and weight and, and things of those matter. But certainly, I did want to empower people and try and and explain to them, look, it's not about perfection. It's a journey and do your best.
0: I'm so glad you brought that field of study into this because it's so important to change the way we think and how we feel if we're really going to see success and true resiliency moving forward. I want to jump back to policy for just a moment because you do bring up two areas. You recommend advocacy, which is great, certainly letting our political leaders know where we stand and why and being a reference for them. But also you talk about dietary guidelines, and I am so glad you brought that up. So we've got U.S. dietary guidelines, and all the countries in the world, pretty much all, have dietary guidelines that they recommend for their populations to prevent disease. But you take issue, and rightfully so, that our dietary guidelines do not fold in sustainability and environmental factors. And it wasn't for lack of trying, was it?
1: No, the Dietary Guideline Committee, the DGAC, they are a group of scientists who come together and they look at the data and they do recommend issues with regards to health and and also sustainability. And that was true for the 2015 to 2020 guidelines. But unfortunately, when it got past the committee and went before Congress to ratify or, uh, you know, make sure that the guidelines were acceptable to everyone, unfortunately, what the committee recommended was not taken up by the final guidelines, which I found quite, I don't know if depressing is the right word for this, but it bothered me a lot. (laughs) So I had to write about it for sure.
0: Well, it was quite illuminating. To see the process and realize that there is a push. And I think that there is a little bit of momentum and it's growing and we need to keep pushing so that one day in the next five years when our next dietary guidelines come out, maybe there will be so much public and professional pressure that we will start to see some of those environmental recommendations. It's urgent, truly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, I definitely hope so. I, I really hope that there's enough noise amongst the, the people and, you know, calling their representatives or their senators and saying, hey, you know, this isn't right. I mean, two thirds of Americans believe that there should be sustainability issues in the dietary guidelines. So, I mean, absolutely, if the government is supposed to listen to the will of the people and our opinions, then for sure the next go around should have that as part of the guidelines.
0: Right. Well, we've got about five minutes left, and I want to give you a chance to bring something or more items out from this book that you want to make sure that our listeners know.
1: Well, I do think if someone was to ask me, what's the number one thing that I can do today that won't necessarily change my entire lifestyle, because, you know, that can be a lot of effort, what is the number one thing that I can do today? To help with the environment I would tell them the number one thing that you can do right now is to at your next meal choose more plants a more plant-based diet and choose one that is heavy in legumes and hopefully more organic foods look for foods that are from a regenerative farm there are third-party certifications out there with like the Rodale Institute for example where they do certify products as being regeneratively grown Because what you put on your plate and what you put in your body can make all the difference for your own health and all the difference for the planet if enough people are doing it. So I think that would be kind of my number one take away from the book is don't think this is hopeless. Really look at your next meal as an opportunity to do the environmentally friendly thing. Because if you think about it, a cheeseburger is like driving 20 miles and taking three months worth of showers, whereas if you had... A legume burger, for example, instead, that might be taking a one mile drive and three days of showers. So, really, you can make a huge amount of difference just with one meal.
0: What led you to frame your recommendations in the form of recipes? That's quite unique, and it's really a a wonder. You've got 21 recipes. And they're so digestible, you know, with great recommendations. You've also got great references and notes so people can go back and learn more if they want to. But how did you come to format the book like this? It's really creative.
1: Thank you. I think part of it was that I'm a dietitian and I answer questions about nutrition and food all the time. And I think I look at life in some ways as a recipe. Here's a recipe for a healthy life. Here's a recipe for a healthy planet. So when I think of recipes, I think of steps. I think of here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and here's your final item. And so I think when I was writing the book, I was like, well, how do I be prescriptive without sounding too medical or without sounding too scientific? Because I want people to read the book. I don't want them to be scared off. So when I think of the term recipe, I find that to be quite as you said, digestible or or friendly. And so I think I came up with this idea, kind of a play on words, so to speak, because it just felt like the right mixture of prescription with doability.
0: Yeah, I agree. And not to lead our listeners astray, but you also do have (laughs) what weekly meal plans might actually look like. So there is that food element but I like the way that you've woven in so many other factors that people might say, oh, is this going outside the scope of practice for a dietitian?" You've probably heard that. But mm-hmm. absolutely, if the clothing that we buy and the packaging that we accept or not impacts the health of the planet, it is ultimately going to affect the health of us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we ingest things not just through our mouth. We ingest certain oils. You put them on your skin and they can actually give you some of the essential nutrients that you need. So, I hear what you're saying maybe would be out of the scope of practice. However, I would say that my overall practice as both a dietitian but also as someone who has studied climate change and all the various aspects of planetary health, how are we contributing or not contributing, I would say it all lends itself to being part of the same holistic idea.
0: Absolutely. I think that it is very much the scope of practice for all healthcare providers to be weaving in issues of climate. So thank you for this book. We need to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Dana Ellis Hunnis. She has worked as a clinical inpatient dietitian at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center since 2005. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. And she is the author of a very action oriented book titled Recipe for Survival What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. Dana, thank you so much for being my guest.
1: Thank you. Very thoughtful questions. It was a wonderful experience.